Section 13 of The Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 13. Book 33. Chapters 22 to 35. Orpimentum, Electrum, Statues of Gold, Chrysocolla, Silver, Quicksilver, Stimmi, Albastrum, Labusus, Scoria of Silver. Chapter 22. Orpiment. There is also one other method of procuring gold by making it from orpiment a mineral dug from the surface of the earth in Syria and much used by painters. It is just the colour of gold, but brittle, like mirror stone. In fact, this substance greatly excited the hopes of the Emperor Caius, a prince who was most greedy for gold. He accordingly had a large quantity of it melted and really did obtain some excellent gold. But then the proportion was so extremely small that he found himself a loser thereby. Such was the result of an experiment prompted solely by avarice, and this too, although the price of the orpiment itself was no more than four denarii per pound, since his time the experiment has never been repeated. Chapter 23. Electrum. In all gold ore there is some silver in varying proportions, a tenth part in some instances, an eighth in others. In one mine, and that only, the one known as the mine of Albucrara in Galicia, the proportion of silver is but one thirty-sixth, hence it is that the ore of this mine is so much more valuable than that of others. Whenever the proportion of silver is one-fifth, the ore is known also by the name of electrum. Grains, too, of this metal are often found in the gold known as canaliense. An artificial electrum, too, is made by mixing silver with gold. If the proportion of silver exceeds one-fifth, the metal offers no resistance on the anvil. Electrum, too, was highly esteemed in ancient times, as we learn from the testimony of Homer, who represents the palace of Menelaus, as refulgent with gold and electrum, silver and ivory. At Lindos, in the island of Rhodes, there is a temple dedicated to Minerva, in which there is a goblet of electrum, consecrated by Helena. History states also that it was moulded after the proportions of her bosom. One peculiar advantage of electrum is its superior brilliancy to silver by lamplight, Native electrum has also the property of detecting poisons, for in such case semicircles resembling the rainbow in appearance will form upon the surface of the goblet and emit a crackling noise like that of flame, thus giving a twofold indication of the presence of poison. Chapter 24. The First Statues of Gold the first statue of massive gold, without any hollowness within, and anterior to any of those statues of bronze even, which are known as hollow spherati, 
is said to have been erected in the temple of the goddess Anaitis. To what particular region this name belongs, we have already stated, it being that of a divinity held in the highest veneration by the nations in that part of the world. This statue was carried off during the wars of Antonius with the people of Parthia, and a witty saying is told with reference to it of one of the veterans of the Roman army, a native of Bononia, entering on one occasion the late Emperor Augustus at dinner, he was asked by a prince whether he was aware that the person who was the first to commit this violence upon the statue had been struck with blindness and paralysis, and then expired. To this he made answer that at that very moment Augustus was making his dinner off one of her legs, for that he himself was the very man, and to that bit of plunder he had been indebted for all his fortune. As regards statues of human beings, Gorgias of Leontini was the first to erect a solid statue of gold in the temple at Delphi, in honour of himself, about the 70th Olympiad. So great were the fortunes then made by teaching the art of oratory. Chapter 25. Eight Remedies Derived from Gold Gold is efficacious as a remedy in many ways, being applied to wounded persons and to infants, to render any malpractices of sorcery comparatively innocuous that may be directed against them. Gold, however, itself is mischievous in its effects if carried over the head, in the case of chickens and lambs more particularly. The proper remedy in such case is to wash the gold and to sprinkle the water upon the objects which it is wished to preserve. Gold, too, is melted with twice its weight of salt and three times its weight of mizzy, after which it is again melted with two parts of salt and one of the stone called schistos. Employed in this manner, it withdraws the natural acridity from the substances torrified with it in the crucible, while at the same time it remains pure and incorrupt, the residue forming an ash which is preserved in an earthen vessel and is applied with water for the cure of lichens on the face. The best method of washing it off is with bean meal. These ashes have the property also of curing fistulas and the discharges known as hemorrhoides. With the addition, too, of powdered pumice, they are a cure for putrid ulcers and sores which emit an offensive smell. Gold, boiled in honey with melanthium and applied as a liniment to the navel, acts as a gentle purgative upon the bowels. M. Varro assures us that gold is a cure for warts. Chapter 26. Chrysocolla. Chrysocolla is a liquid which is found in the shafts already mentioned, flowing through the veins of gold, a kind of slime which becomes indurated by the cold of winter till it has attained the hardness even of pumice. The most esteemed kind of it, it has been ascertained, is found in copper mines, the next best being the produce of silver mines. It is found also in lead mines, but that found in combination with gold ore is much inferior. In all these mines, too, 
An artificial chrysocolor is manufactured, much inferior, however, to the native chrysocolor. The method of preparing it consists in introducing water gradually into a vein of metal throughout the winter and until the month of June, after which it is left to dry up during the months of June and July, so that, in fact, it is quite evident that chrysocolor is nothing else but the putrefaction of a metallic vein. Native chrysocolor, known as uva, differs from the other in its hardness more particularly, and yet, hard as it is, admits of being coloured with the plant known as lutum. Like flax and wool, it is of a nature which imbibes liquids. For the purpose of dyeing it, it is first bruised in a mortar, after which it is passed through a fine sieve. This done, it is ground and then passed through a still finer sieve, all that refuses to pass being replaced in the mortar and subjected once more to the mill. The finest part of the powder is from time to time measured out into a crucible, where it is macerated in vinegar, so that all the hard particles may be dissolved, after which it is pounded again and then rinsed in shell-shaped vessels and left to dry. This done, the chrysocolor is dyed by the agency of schist alum and the plant above mentioned, and thus is it painted itself before it serves to paint. It is of considerable importance, too, that it should be absorbent and readily take the dye. Indeed, if it does not speedily take the colour, cytonum and turbistum are added to the dye, such being the names of two drugs which compel it to absorb the colouring matter. Chapter 27. The Use Made of Chrysocolor in Painting When chrysocolor has been thus dyed, painters call it orobitis, and distinguish two kinds of it, the cleansed orobitis, which is kept for making lamentum, and the liquid, the balls being dissolved for use by evaporation. Both these kinds are prepared in Cyprus, but the most esteemed is that made in Armenia, the next best being that of Macedonia. It is Spain, however, that produces the most. The great point of its excellence consists in its producing exactly the tint of corn when it is in a state of the freshest verdure. Before now, we have seen, at the spectacles exhibited by the Emperor Nero, the arena of the circus entirely sanded with chrysocolor, when the prince himself, clad in a dress of the same colour, was about to exhibit as a charioteer. The unlearned multitude of artisans distinguish three kinds of chrysocolor. The rough chrysocolor, which is valued at seven denarii per pound, the middling worth five denarii, and the bruised, also known as the herbaceous chrysocolor, worth three denarii per pound. Before laying on the sanded chrysocolor, they underlay coats of atramentum and paritonium, substances which make it hold and impart a softness to the colors. The paritonium, as it is naturally very unctuous, and from its smoothness extremely tenacious, is laid on first and is then covered with a coat of atramentum, lest the paritonium, from its extreme whiteness, should impart a paleness to the chrysocolor. The kind known as lutea derives its name, 
it is thought, from the plant called lutum, which itself is often pounded with chiruleum instead of real chrysocolla and used for painting, making a very inferior kind of green and extremely deceptive. Chapter 28. Seven Remedies Derived from Chrysocolla Chrysocolla, too, is made use of in medicine. In combination with wax and oil, it is used as a detergent for wounds, and used by itself in the form of a powder, it acts as a desiccative and heals them. In cases, too, of quinsy and hardness of breathing, chrysocolla is prescribed in the form of an electuary with honey. It acts as an emetic also, and is used as an ingredient in eye salves, for the purpose of effacing cicatrizations upon the eyes. In green plasters, too, it is used for soothing pain and making scars disappear. This kind of chrysocolla is known by medical men as acasis and is altogether different from orobitis. Chapter 29. The Chrysocolla of the Goldsmiths, known also as Santerna. The goldsmiths also employ a chrysocolla of their own for the purpose of soldering gold, and it is from this chrysocolla, they say, that all the other substances which present a similar green have received their name. This preparation is made from verdigris of Cyprian copper, the urine of a youth who has not arrived at puberty, and a portion of nitre. It is then pounded with a pestle of Cyprian copper in a copper mortar, and the name given to the mixture is Santerna. It is in this way that the gold known as silvery gold is soldered, one sign of its being so alloyed being its additional brilliancy on the application of Santerna. If, on the other hand, the gold is impregnated with copper, it will contract on coming in contact with the Santerna, become dull, and only be soldered with the greatest difficulty. Indeed, for this last kind of gold, there is a peculiar solder employed, made of gold and one-seventh part of silver, in addition to the materials above mentioned, the whole beaten up together. Chapter 30 The Marvellous Operations of Nature in Soldering Metallic Substances and Bringing Them to a State of Perfection While speaking on this subject, it will be as well to annex the remaining particulars, that our admiration may here be drawn to all the marvels presented by nature in connection therewith. The proper solder for gold is that above described, for iron, potter's clay, for copper when in masses, cadmia, and in sheets, alum, for lead and marble, resin. Lead is also united by the aid of white lead, white lead with white lead by the agency of oil, Stannum with copper file dust, and silver with stannum. For smelting copper and iron, pine wood is the best, Egyptian papyrus being also very good for the purpose. Gold is melted most easily with a fire made of chaff. Limestone and Thracian stone are ignited by the agency of water, this last being extinguished by the application of oil. Fire, however, is extinguished most readily by the application of vinegar, viscous, and unboiled eggs. Earth will under no circumstance ignite. When charcoal has been once quenched and then again ignited, 
it gives out a greater heat than before. Chapter 31. Silver. After stating these facts, we come to speak of silver ore, the next folly of mankind. Silver is never found but in shafts sunk deep into the ground, there being no indications to raise hopes of its existence, no shining sparkles, as in the case of gold. The earth in which it is found is sometimes red, sometimes of an ashy hue. It is impossible, too, to melt it, except in combination with lead or with galena, this last being the name given to the vein of lead that is mostly found running near the veins of the silver ore. When submitted, too, to the action of fire, part of the ore precipitates itself in the form of lead, while the silver is left floating on the surface, like oil on water. Silver is found in nearly all our provinces, but the finest of all is that of Spain, where it is found, like gold, in uncultivated soils, and in the mountains even. Wherever, too, one vein of silver has been met with, another is sure to be found not far off, a thing that has been remarked, in fact, in the case of nearly all the metals, which would appear from this circumstance to have derived their Greek name of metalla. It is a remarkable fact that the shafts opened by Hannibal in the Spanish provinces are still worked, their names being derived from the persons who were the first to discover them. One of these mines, which at the present day is still called Bibelo, furnished Hannibal with 300 pounds weight of silver per day. The mountain is already excavated for a distance of 1,500 paces, and throughout the whole of this distance there are water-bearers standing night and day, bailing out the water in turns, regulated by the light of torches, and so forming quite a river. The vein of silver that is found nearest the surface is known by the name of Crudaria. In ancient times, the excavations used to be abandoned the moment alum was met with, and no further search was made. Of late, however, the discovery of a vein of copper beneath alum has withdrawn any such limits to man's hopes. The exhalations from silver mines are dangerous to all animals, but to dogs more particularly. The softer they are, the more beautiful gold and silver are considered, it is a matter of surprise, with most persons, that lines traced with silver should be black. Chapter 32. Quicksilver. There is a mineral also found in these veins of silver, which yields a humour that is always liquid, and is known as quicksilver. It acts as a poison upon everything, and pierces vessels even, making its way through them by the agency of its malignant properties. All substances float upon the surface of quicksilver, with the exception of gold, this being the only substance that it attracts to itself. Hence it is that it is such an excellent refiner of gold, for, on being briskly shaken in an earthen vessel with gold, it rejects all the impurities that are mixed with it. When once it has thus expelled these superfluities, there is nothing to do but separate it from the gold, to effect which... It is poured out upon skins that have been well torn, and so, exuding through them like a sort of perspiration, it leaves the gold in a state of purity behind. Hence it is, too, that when copper has to be gilded, 
a coat of quicksilver is laid beneath a gold leaf, which it retains in its place with the greatest tenacity. In cases, however, where the leaf is single or very thin, the presence of the quicksilver is detected by the paleness of the colour. For this reason, persons, when meditating a piece of fraud, have been in the habit of substituting glare of egg for quicksilver, and then laying upon it a coat of hydrargyros, a substance of which we shall make further mention in the appropriate place. Generally speaking, quicksilver has not been found in any large quantities. Chapter 33. Stimmy, Stibby, Alabastrum, Labasis, or, or Platyophthalmon. In the same mines in which silver is found, there is also found a substance which, properly speaking, may be called a stone made of concrete froth. It is white and shining, without being transparent, and has the several names of Stimmy, Stibby, Alabastrum, and Labasis. There are two kinds of it, the male and the female. The latter kind is the more approved of, the male stimmy being more uneven, rougher to the touch, less ponderous, not so radiant and more gritty. The female kind, on the other hand, is bright and friable and separates in laminae and not in globules. Chapter 34. Seven Remedies Derived from Stimmy Stimmy is possessed of certain astringent and refrigerative properties, its principal use in medicine being for the eyes. Hence it is that most persons call it platyophthalmon, it being extensively employed in the calibulpharic preparations of females for the purpose of dilating the eyes. It also acts as a check upon the fluxes of the eyes and ulcerations of those organs, being used as a powder with pounded frankincense and gum. It has the property, too, of arresting discharges of blood from the brain, and sprinkled in the form of a powder, it is extremely efficacious for the cure of recent wounds and bites of dogs, which have been some time inflicted. For the cure of burns, it is remarkably good, mixed with grease, litharge, ceruse and wax. The method of preparing it is to burn it, enclosed in a coat of cow dung in a furnace, which done it is quenched with woman's milk and pounded with rainwater in a mortar. While this is doing, the thick and turbid part is poured off from time to time into a copper vessel and purified with nitre. The lees of it, which are rejected, are recognised by their being full of lead and falling to the bottom. The vessel into which the turbid part has been poured off is then covered with a linen cloth and left untouched for a night. The portion that lies upon the surface being poured off the following day, or else removed with a sponge. The part that has fallen to the bottom of the vessel is regarded as the choicest part, and is left covered with a linen cloth to dry in the sun, but not to become parched. This done, it is again pounded in a mortar and then divided into tablets. But the main thing of all is to observe such degree of nicety in heating it as not to let it become lead. Some persons, when preparing it on the fire, use grease instead of dung. Others, again, bruise it in water and pass it through a triple strainer of linen cloth, after which they reject the lees 
and pour off the remainder of the liquid, collecting all that is deposited at the bottom and using it as an ingredient in plasters and eye salves. It has certain restringent and refrigerative effects upon bodies and, like molybdina, of which we shall make further mention when speaking of lead, is used as an ingredient in making plasters, those more particularly which are to promote the cicatrization of wounds. It is employed also for the cure of tenacimus and dysentery, being injected in the form of clyster with myrtle oil. It forms an ingredient, too, in the medicaments known as nipari, for the removal of fleshy excrescences in sores, ulcerations arising from chafing, or running ulcers on the head. The same mines also furnish us with the preparation known as scum of silver. There are three varieties of it. The best known as chrysitis, the second best, the name of which is agiritis, and the third kind, which is called molybditis. In most instances, too, all these tints are to be found in the same cake. The most approved kind is that of Attica, the next being that which comes from Spain. Chrysitis is the produce of the metallic vein. Argyritis is obtained from the silver itself, and molybditis is the result of the smelting of lead, a work that is done at Puteoli, to which last circumstance, in fact, molybditis owes its name. All these substances are prepared in the following manner. The metal is first melted and then allowed to flow from a more elevated receiver into a lower. From this last it is lifted by the aid of iron spits and is then twirled round at the end of the spit in the midst of the flames in order to make it all the lighter. Thus, as may be easily perceived from the name, it is in reality the scum of a substance in a state of fusion, of the future metal, in fact. It differs from scoria in the same way that the scum of a liquid differs from the lees, the one being an excretion thrown out by the metal while purifying itself, the other an excretion of the metal when purified. Some persons distinguish two kinds of scum of silver, and give them the names of Cyreritis and Pumene, a third variety being Molybdina, of which we shall have to make further mention when treating of lead. To make this scum fit for use, the cakes are again broken into pieces the size of a hazelnut and then melted, the fire being briskly blown with the bellows. For the purpose of separating the charcoal and ashes from it, it is then rinsed with vinegar or with wine, and is so quenched. In the case of Argyritis, it is recommended, in order to blanch it, to break it into pieces the size of a bean, and then to boil it with water in an earthen vessel, first putting with it, wrapped in linen cloths, some new wheat and barley, which are left there till they have lost the outer coat. This done, they bruise the whole in mortars for six consecutive days, taking care to rinse the mixture in cold water three times a day, and after that in an infusion of hot water and fossil salt, one oblus of the latter to every pound of scum. At the end of the six days, it is put away for keeping in a vessel of lead. Some persons boil it with white beans and a tisson of barley, and then dry it in the sun. Others, again, with white wool and beans, 
till such time as it imparts no darkness to the wool, after which, first adding fossil salt, they change the water from time to time, and then dry it during the forty hottest days of summer. In some instances, the practice is to boil it in water in a swine's paunch, and then to take it out and rub it with nitre, after which, following the preceding method, they pound it in a mortar with salt. Some, again, never boil it, but pound it only with salt, and then rinse it with water. Scum of silver is used as an ingredient in eye salves, and in the form of a liniment by females, for the purpose of removing spots and blemishes caused by scars, as also in washes for the hair. Its properties are desiccative, emollient, refrigerative, temperative, and detergent. It fills up cavities in the flesh produced by ulceration and reduces tumours. For all these purposes, it is employed as an ingredient in plaster and in the lipari previously mentioned. In combination with rue, myrtle and vinegar, it removes erysipelas and with myrtle and wax, it is a cure for chilblains. End of section 13